If you look at how much work sales managers have to do, and most of it is internal requests. Oh, they have to do a QPR. They have to do this presentation. They have to get this report. And not every company has fully enabled automation for those reports. So a lot of that can end up being manual. So they end up spending so much time fighting internal fires, or maybe there is a deal and they're fighting an internal fire to get something approved on that deal. It's still an internal issue versus spending most of their time externally and with their reps doing coaching, assuming they know how to coach the reps. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Lori Harmon. Lori's the Vice President of Global Cloud Sales and Customer Success at NetApp and the author of a book titled 42 Rules for Building a High-Velocity Inside Sales Team. And in this episode, that's exactly what I talk about with Lori, building a high-velocity sales team. Now, we get into the nitty-gritty with Lori's recommendations and advice about how to structure your sales team, building your sales process, how to handle inbound and outbound, how to hire, and how to enable sales managers, and much, much more. So stick around. Very interesting conversation. Before we get to Lori, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Lori Harmon, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Andy. Really excited to be here today. Well, excited to have you here. Um, so where, where are you joining us from? I'm joining you from Redwood City, California. Redwood City. I almost, almost bought a house in Redwood City once. I think you're so. probably happy of where you are now in San Diego, though. <laughs> well, this was years ago. This was like uh, end of the 80s. Um, and we were had our first home was in Palo Alto, and we were looking for a bigger home. And mm-hmm. couldn't afford one in Palo Alto, but we could in, in Redwood City. Yes. It's a nice area. I think I've, well, I've been here since about that time, late 80s. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I just remember the house was the uh was a beautiful house and they've been recently remodeled and i forget what part of redwood city is very close to the menlo park border and and um but the woman we bought it from her backyard she cultivated edible flowers she had this big business she sold to um sold those to restaurants oh that's cool yeah yeah so i guess she was just gonna go restart somewhere else else but yeah we had all these edible flowers that would have been ours had we bought the house but anyway um yeah, you mentioned, so you've been around since then. So how'd you get your start in sales? How'd I get my start in sales? Oh, wow. Okay, well, my uh, major was in information systems in college, and so I was planning to be a computer programmer. Mm-hmm. And I co-opted with IBM one summer. I thought, this is a great way to get out of North Carolina. I'll co-op with IBM somewhere else. <laughs> and after co-oping for the summer, then I in, in North Carolina, I m- went to California to do a co-op session And that's why I moved to California, because I love the weather here. But while I was doing that, I realized that I really didn't want to do that for a living. And all the people that I was working with said, you're way too social to be in this this particular area. You need to go talk to the sales department. So I interviewed in San Francisco for a sales job at IBM. (laughs) I got hired. Too social to be a tech. (laughs) Too social to be a programmer, I guess. Got hired by the sales organization at IBM in like December. And then once I graduated the next June, I moved back to California to go to work for IBM in sales 
which in the end was a great decision. They had wonderful oh, yeah. training, and I, I never Absolutely. looked back from there. And so what product line were you selling? I was selling printers and mainframes. Should I even admit that? <laughs> yes. So you can you get an idea of how long ago that was when I was selling really large-scale hardware products. Yeah. Well, no, I, I got my start with Burroughs selling okay. mainframes and so on. So, yeah, no, I, I understand. Um, <laughs> those days disappeared fairly quickly. They did. Well, there's still some large hardware out there, but I think I'm, right. I'm pretty happy that I've made the transition to software and, and in particular the cloud. So what was your journey after IBM? Let's see. After IBM, being so close to Silicon Valley, I, I looked at my friends. I'm like, wow, I felt like they were going faster and having a lot more variety of experience. Mm-hmm. So I decided mm-hmm. to get from out of San Francisco, which wasn't so much a, a Silicon Valley hub at the time, and get no, down into the all. valley. So I went to work at Sun Microsystems, so still hardware, a bit smaller. But I worked in their networking arena, so I was helping them with Ethernet and Token Ring and things like that as a product manager. So I did move from sales into product management for a bit, and then I moved to another company called Network General, which also did Mm -hmm. security, the Sniffer, which is a very famous product name, Right. Right. as a product manager. But after I was there for like seven years and moved from product management ultimately back into sales. And I haven't been in sales the entire time. I've definitely had a few other great experiences moving to different organizations to expand my, you know, breadth of experience and perspective. But sales has always been the home that I've come back to. Well, I was going to ask the question then. So what do you feel you learned in those other experiences that helped you in sales? I mean, I similarly, you know, I was in sales first four years of my career then. I joined Apple back in the early 80s and worked in marketing for a couple of years. And then uh, the next company, I worked in channels and finally found my way back to sales. I Mm -hmm. did program management at one point, Um, technical program management. Interesting for a history major. But um, yeah, I mean, I felt like all those things really contributed to sales. So what do you think you learned, brought back to sales from those other experiences? Well, I think the number one thing is probably empathy. And so as a salesperson, you might be beating up your product team to get you a new product. But if you have a better understanding of what they have to go through to get that product out or what a product marketing person has to do through to go through to position that product and make sure it's resonating with the market and the research that they need to do just to decide what to do next, you may not want, you may not be any more patient in terms of the timing, but you certainly have a lot better perspective of what they have to go through to get that product to you. So I think it makes it for richer conversations that you can have when you're talking to a product manager or a product marketing person saying, hey, this is what I need. Understand this is a lot of work for you or kind of understand your process. But, you know, how can I help you to get it to me faster? That type of information. Certainly have understand the perspective from marketing since I have also spent some time in marketing and doing demand gen. It's, It's always been challenging to get enough leads for the sales organization. And I spent some time in professional services and customer support. So I know what it's like to get beat up a lot. (laughs) And so having empathy and trying to think about, I really need to make this, like I need to sell the right product to this customer so that when they get activated and onboarding, the product's a right fit so that ideally the customer's not having to call support very much and they're happy with their product and then they renew. Versus trying right. to cram something in that maybe isn't a good fit just to make my number. Yeah, well, I mean, 
good fit both externally and internally. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cause the impact is if it's not a good fit for the customer, it's not a good fit internally, then yeah, you're a drain on, on resources. Absolutely. We, everybody's tight on resources. So we want to maximize that. So I would say empathy is the biggest thing that I learned, but certainly just knowing what those teams have to go through is very helpful in, in figuring out the bigger picture for the organization. Cause I think as salespeople or especially sales leaders, you know, we can't have siloed thinking. We have to have a broader perspective than that. Well, so that's an interesting point. I was going to actually, I had a, one of the questions I'll ask you a little bit later, but I'll bring up now is just whole point about siloed thinking is, is has this, you know, marketing sales divisions like sort of like run its course. I mean, is it time to like completely rethink how these two organizations are brought together and restructured in a way that, that reflects how we want to work with our customers? I think that is a great point and a great question. So I do think it's time to rethink it. How quickly will it change? I think it'll still take a little bit of time. One of the things that we've recently done at NetApp is we brought in a new president and under the president, sales and marketing are both reporting into the president. So instead of Mm -hmm. sales being going up to the CEO and marketing going up to the CEO, we're all in quote unquote, the same organization at one level down. And I do believe that's going to bring things closer together. At the same time, I've heard some discussion, and this is more from like the Gartners and the McKinsey's of the world about how in some cases, companies are setting up merged marketing and sales teams to go after a specific market, whether that's a vertical or, you know, some other segment, some other go-to-market for that particular company. But it is a group that, like, you're not in a marketing and sales team. You're in a single team together. So I think that's where you get into the big part of rethinking how marketing and sales work together. And you're, you're away from the pointing fingers. Well, yeah. But I was thinking even, I've got sort of this simple split. And I, I've actually read this uh, from a guy that I've followed it for a few years online is, is his contention was what we should do is just the world should be split into two parts. One is acquire, one is retain. And those are two organizations. Mm-hmm. Go forward. That's all we do. We acquire new customers and we retain customers. And what would it look like, the organizations look like if you did that? Mm. Okay, that's a that's a good perspective because the other thing we're looking at is a little bit broader. It, it includes the acquire and retain, but it basically says acquire, which is is have you know, generate the interest and then there's land then there's expand and then there's scale or slash retain and so we have a couple more boxes in our thought process but what would it look like well i, I definitely think on the acquire side today what we see in, in that bucket is marketing kind of puts stuff in there right and you might have a, an sdr or digital sales team doing that qualification but mm. what if the what if marketing and sales were were both in that acquire team Right, Because I think that's a lot of the times where you see, oh, hey, we're not getting enough leads or, oh, we're sending you all these leads and, and then the sales side of it, it's, but they're not good quality. I mean, there's a lot of back and forth on that and trying to make it work as organizations. As yeah. Yes. Who report into different leaders? If you, you all report into one leader and you had a number, whether that number was number of trials, number of sales qualified leads, or maybe it was a different number. If you all were measured on the same number, maybe it's revenue. You know, yeah. Who knows what it is? Then you definitely, you definitely all work in tandem together to get the job done. And right now, it's there's even though even if marketing is measured on revenue, there still seems to be a gap. 
in that part of it, just in the acquire part. And there could be other gaps because along the way, once you get into the land, expand and retain, maybe you have a customer success team supporting those three areas. You know, what is marketing's role? It, it should be to help with that expansion, right? And help with that retention. Sure. And then you've got to ask yourself, how are they doing that? They're, they're certainly notifying customers of opportunities to buy other products that are complementary, you know, but what else, you know, what, what's the expanded role there? Yeah. Maybe it's, I said, it's maybe there's no longer just one marketing organization, Mm -hmm. but there's marketing in the retain side, land and expand, retain and, and in the, well, I mean, on the land, but that'd be part of the acquire group in my mind. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, our companies are doing things different. I know a company here in the San Diego area that I, I worked with years ago in one of their first handful, few handfuls of employees. And, um, yeah, they're a multi-billion dollar organization. They don't have a sales function. Ah. They, don't have a v- they don't have a VP of sales. Interesting. What, they, what do they have? They have a chief customer officer? Or is it something even different than that? It, it even, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be doing some, hopefully, some interviewing with them about this. It's, mm. it's just like, it's just a different structure altogether. And it, it has its roots from where they came from as initially as a defense business, uh, selling tech into the defense. But but they're very diversified now. They have consumer products. They've got software, hardware. I mean, still sell to defense. But it's like, yeah, it's possible to grow a business without having a sales function. That's very interesting. Well, and I think this there, it makes more sense now that things are becoming more digitized and buyers are pushing more for a digital and or remote experience. There's still the face. To, well, maybe there's not face to face in person today with the pandemic, but there is right. still definitely there's face to face on zoom or whatever other screen sharing you have, but there's definitely a clear preference from a buyer perspective to have, to allow them to be more independent and make their own decisions. And if possible by digitally, then the backup mm-hmm. to that is to have a remote experience and then, okay, well, if I really have to, I'll have a face to face meeting. Does that apply to every single buyer? Certainly there's larger accounts that may not go through that exact process, but I would say the majority of companies are pushing into that direction. Yeah. Well, because we don't know what's going to come, right? We I don't. Mean, I mean, yeah, it's possible. We maybe If we go two years without any significant face-to-face, then why can't we go 20 years without it? So, it's true. Absolutely true. <laughs> but I, I think at some point, because I think this is, is sort of relevant to the whole discussion about you know the role of automation ai and machine learning and so mm-hmm. on in sales it's been discussed endlessly is that yeah reach point where, the, where i think that real human interaction is a differentiator and i think we sort of it almost feels like to me many organizations have gone too far to try to take that away mm-hmm. thinking that the cost of acquisition doesn't doesn't justify it when actually when you look at factor in maybe how you can increase your odds of landing the business, then it more than justifies itself. I think the key reason to have those AI tools is to give sellers more time to have, to build those relationships, even if they're having to do it remotely, if it's whether, whether it's via email or chat or on a social media platform or on the phone or zoom, you want to free up their time to build that relationship. And you have to be careful. I agree. If there's, if it's too many bots answering something from a potential buyer, you have to know when is the right time for a, a human to insert themselves in that process. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, it's, it may be difficult to figure that out, but that's really the key behind the science is figuring out when is the right time. When does the buyer 
want to talk to you? When are they conversation ready? So you're not going in and the buyer's like, whoa, I don't want to talk to you, but you're not taking so long to get into the conversation that they're frustrated. It's like, hey, I really wanted to talk to somebody and I can't. Because how many times well, have you con- tried to contact a company and you can't get in touch with them? So that's too far to the other side. Yeah. I mean, I look at it. If, if you're talking, if you're in a conversation with a customer, it's because they want your help. Mm-hmm. If they don't want your help, they're not going to talk to you. <laughs> right. They're not going to respond to those, those outreaches. <laughs> respond or the outreaches. But if they're going to answer the phone, if they're going to talk to you, if they respond to an email, they're in the midst of something. They're, they're interested. They're going to need some help. And, you know, this is, for me, is you know where the role of the human really plays a, a, the central role in sales is, yeah, you're not going to be able to replace that with, with a bot or a machine learning tool, driven tool of some sort. It's like, yeah, this is, you know. This is serious. This is contextual. This is, you know, emotional. This is human. This is your place to differentiate. Absolutely. I think that is the key right there. It is a place to differentiate because at the beginning of some of these tools, they were saying, oh, it's going to replace sellers, but that's just, that's just not going to be the case. And I don't think it's (laughs) ever going to be the case. You know, the only place they're, they're replaced is on maybe consumer things like Amazon, but not when you're buying more complicated technology-based products is just simply not possible. Plus, there's so much competing information for the buyer. Typically, at some point, they need to talk to a human to sort it out, like help right. me figure out which piece of information is telling me the truth and help me really verify that your product, product A versus product B, can do what they say they're going to do. Yeah. Well, so here's here's something that interesting question for you i think is is so year and a half ago almost two years now gosh almost two years yeah gartner comes out with their buyer enablement study and they've got their famous diagram of the buyer experience and buyer journey which is this uh very complex dense flow chart they call it the spaghetti diagram because it Uh looks like they threw a handful of spaghetti on the wall yes very familiar with that diagram yeah so but i've in, you know, I talked to hundreds of CEOs and sales leaders on the show, and and I've I've never really talked to them that said, well, yeah, we look at that, and we said, yeah, we should we should try to align our sales process with their buying process. And I was wondering, you know, is, <laughs> is this you know part of the problem we're facing? Is that we're just not aligned with with how the buyer wants to buy, and therefore perhaps leaving ourselves open to them exploring other ways to buy. Yeah, that's a great concept because I think there's the way the buyer might want to buy. And then there are the realities, which I believe are on the Gartner chart, which is, hey, right. I'm a buyer. Personally, I just like to go evaluate the products and pick it out myself and say, we're doing this. But clearly, I'm not the only decision maker. Oftentimes, I, I mm-hmm. can't say, okay, IT, we're going to use this. Or if we're going to use something for a bunch of sales teams, oh, those other sales teams probably want to have a say in that. And since it has to work with the market, the marketing has to feed into it in some way, marketing might want to have a say in it. So it's really right. impossible for a buyer to have their own streamlined process. So therefore, that spaghetti situation happens. But you can't align to a bowl of spaghetti. So I believe that you have to have, you know, I guess you have to think of key points and the, the key information you need. But then you have to figure out where is the buyer in their process and hopefully they can not only articulate that, but maybe they can articulate what else has to be done to finish their buying process. But often the buyer gets surprised by something that happens in their company. So I think the key thing is mm-hmm. you can't totally align to that process because it's not linear. 
you simply have to be flexible as a seller and intuitive and sensitive to where your buyer is. So if they're going to go backwards, they're going to go backwards and then you have to try to help them to move forward again or help them to educate some of the other buyers. What is it? I think it's 11, an average of 11 buyers today. So you have to help them to somehow educate the other 11 buyers to get on your, you know, get on the same page yeah. with you so you can take the whole group forward together if that's even possible. But it's, it's really about flexibility and empathy and understanding. I agree 100%. I, I, back to the diagram, those sort of last points, you know, because Gartner laid out the four jobs that the buyers mm-hmm. need to do, you know, identify problem, define or define the problems, identify solutions, uh, finalize their specification or requirements and, and choose a vendor. And what's interesting is, is I, again, talk to so many people is that so many sales organizations are just focused at that last box, select mm-hmm. the vendor. Mm-hmm. And yet, to me, all the action happens the first three boxes, because this this is this this is this is where you influence the yeah. the choices they're going to mm-hmm. make about how they're going to mm-hmm. solve the problem. And I know if I get designed in at that stage, then when they go to select the vendor, hey, I'm the inside track. Well, I think it's it's not Gardner. It's either, it's Forbes and Forrester both have a stat that's very similar. It's around seventy percent of the decision is made on the purchase before they contact the salesperson. So exactly what you said is correct. The company or the the sales rep potentially, but the company has to be involved with that buyer process early on. So when they're doing the research. Your digital information has to be out there in the right places for them to find your company so that as they're researching, you have to have compelling content that ideally will lead the buyer to choosing you as certainly Mm -hmm. one of the vendors that they proceed with through the rest of the steps of that process. So eventually, when they are willing to talk to a salesperson, you're at least somewhere on their short list. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. There's so much controversy about that that figure, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, there are adherents to, to that, or there's the other camp that says, well, nah, because you know, if you're out making proactive cold calls, the people are proactive outbound, they're not in a process till we contact them. That's absolutely true. Sometimes they may, and we do that a lot here. We have a lot of proactive outbound that we do, and we definitely uncover opportunities. And maybe it's a bit earlier. Maybe they said, okay, yes, we're going to do that, and we're going to do that in three months or six months. But you're still there early enough so that when they're poised to do that, ideally, you're the first name on the list that they start looking at or they call you and say, hey, I got this big process. Can you just help me get through my process? So it is definitely all about timing. And I do agree that you can get on the front end of the process with those types of contacts or the other mm-hmm. thing is if you're not, then you're going to rely on the fact that the buyer is out there searching for something. So you need to be findable. Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather not rely on serendipity though. It does, it does yeah. play a big role in sales more than people want to admit. It's true. You just have to know all the people you need to contact, you know, all your all the people in your sweet spot, you really need to be able to get to those in some way because you don't know what their timing is until you actually connect with them. Exactly, exactly. So back to back to you. So um, there's a question I ask my guests these days. It's sort of a standard question. But the, the only one I have the standard is, is who taught you how to sell? Who is the big influence on you? Setting aside, you know, you've got this baseline of experience. We all learn from, mm-hmm. through our experience, but 
But yeah, who was the big influence? Was it like a coach? Was it a peer, a customer, a company provided training? What 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 was the thing that was really did it for you? I would say it was company provided training. So clearly the the IBM Foundation is always a great thing to have, but when I worked at Network General, they introduced us to the Sandler sales methodology. And in, mm-hmm. in that particular one, I mean, there's a lot of sales methodologies out there, and I have not been exposed to all of them. But you come in and you have this two-day training, and then you have the opportunity to go through a year-long process where once a week you can go, at, at the time, you could go to a facility, and mm-hmm. it would be people from other companies there, and you would basically practice. You would do, be doing role-playing and bringing up real-life sales scenarios on a weekly basis for an entire year. It was called their President's Club. So I feel like that is what taught me the best sales skills and really taught me how to sell because it was ongoing. It was, it was basically to have your own private coach and you could even call the person up that was running the weekly session at any time and ask them about specific sales situations that you were in and they could give you advice. So I feel like because it was a year long, and because it was ongoing, I was able to really internalize that sales methodology. And that was what taught me how to sell. So basically, the company bought a subscription for you with like the local Sandler mm-hmm. chapter, or yep. not chapter, but franchise. Yes. And huh. I would, so do you think that's a, and a, a good, I do, I think that's an interesting model for, for how we help enable sellers and train them is, is that sellers are given like a stipend, right? For mm-hmm. because so few companies actually do training these days, mm-hmm. and you know, we, there are real questions about the efficacy of of you know classroom training. You know, companies coming in and training your people, uh, but something like this, it's like, wouldn't we better serve you know taking some of that budget that we might spend on third party trainers and say, yeah, you may still use that third party trainer, but you know, here's a stipend you as a salesperson can use this year, you have to use this year, not can use, but have to use this year to get yourself skilled up. I think that is a good approach. It has to be paired with the fact that then the management at the company, the leadership there, they all have to speak that language, right? So if it's Sandler, if it's some other methodology, everybody has to do it. You can't opt out of the training. And every manager, when you're doing your forecast calls, your pipeline reviews, you're having conversations about opportunities, they're using that language and making sure to, quote unquote, test you on whether you've used that sales methodology as part of your selling process and they're using it up the chain. Because With, without that reinforcement, I think salespeople can go off and do it. And then those that are really self-motivated will internalize it and use it. But the adoption may be low because even though salespeople are generally self-motivated, I think there's probably enough lone wolves out there who would say, yeah, whatever, I'm going to go do my own thing. And their own thing may or may not be the most effective approach. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an interesting thought. I just think about this is, yeah, I, I'm, I have to admit, I'm always sort of conflicted about this idea that, that you have to have a common methodology across an organization because I think. Yes, the common language yeah, makes sense, but the fact is people learn differently, they they execute differently, and, and not all frameworks work the same for people. So it's, I sort of get it, but I, I'm sort of interested in this idea about how we coach and train performance improvement in sellers, because I think we do, we, speaking as a sales profession in general, do a really bad job of it. 
and um, yeah, just looking at the data points of you know CSO insights and quota attainment, mm-hmm. all these other things, it's like yeah. you're we're missing a beat somewhere. And so what we're what we've been doing, what we're spending, according to I forget where I saw the fact, the source of the fact, but it's twenty billion dollars a year in sales training in the United States to get this sort of output. It's like maybe we should be doing something differently. I mean, my my thought is is just to throw it out is I think the real hurdle to sellers getting better is the lack of quality on sales management because that's where I think most of the learning comes from is you know mostly from the immediate supervisor mm-hmm. and yeah you know, we put so much on the plates of these people yet we don't enable the sales manager we don't train them how to coach we don't train them how to uh, work with someone to improve their performance, we presume to a certain degree that they know. I think that's a very valid point. We don't enable them to coach because we're not training them. And I was actually just on a call this morning or just on another webinar this morning listening to something about that exact topic. And if you look at how much work sales managers have to do, and most of it is internal requests. Oh, they have to do a QBR. They have to do this mm-hmm. presentation. Mm-hmm. They have to get this report. And not every company has fully enabled automation for those reports. So a lot of that can end up being manual. So they end up spending so much time fighting internal fires, or maybe there is a deal and they're fighting an internal fire to get something approved on that deal. It's still an internal issue versus spending most of their time externally and with their reps doing coaching, assuming they know how to coach the reps. So I think one is lack of time to coach, but let's say you find the time. Do you have the insights about the reps you need to coach them? And then have you been taught to, to coach reps? There's very few seminars on how to coach. There's seminars, as we talked about, on here's sales methodology. So I guess you could learn, if you learn the methodology, you could learn to coach it potentially. But there's other things to coach on. And when do managers learn that? I don't see a lot of sessions out there or a lot of trainings on, here's how to coach your reps. Yeah, well, I mean, so... (laughs) I can put you on the spot a little bit since you run a large large sales organization is so yeah, you're part of the problem, right? Uh Because you're, you have these expectations for your, your managers is if we want to change things, why don't we look at what, um, and people listen to the show, I know, know exactly where I'm going is why don't we emulate like sports teams, for instance, where they have, specialized coaches on the staff, you know, that deal with various aspects of performance. So why do, why should managers coach? Why shouldn't that just be another position in a sales organization? We have someone who's trained how to be a coach and let them coach the people. Why does the manager have to do it? Well, I think it depends on the piece of it. I really like that. In fact, one of the things I carved out this year to have in my organization on the operations size was a sales enablement head. Now, whether you call it enablement or acceleration or efficiency, that can be debated. But part of this person's role was going to be, and they just aren't hired yet because it went on hold, but part of it was to help us with setting up some of our tools. So one of the tools we use is Xant. And so with that, it manages your cadence and you put the messaging into the tool, right? So if you want to do a, a 
particular campaign on a certain use case, you can use that messaging. And so part of it was to set that up. And then because managers don't have time to actually monitor. So first of all, are the reps following the cadence? Second of all, is the messaging working? Because with the product, you can actually look at engagement, customer engagement. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. they would be offloading and saying, okay, well, this, this content is not engaging. So let's go get some engaging content to help the salesperson to be more successful. Oh, these reps are not following the cadence and their performance isn't as good as the reps that are. So we need to go coach these reps on why it's important to follow the cadence. Or maybe the cadence isn't working at all. We need to change the cadence. So maybe they're not doing all of the coaching for the manager, but they're doing some more of the tactical coaching and maybe they're looking at activities and and are they doing the sort of the right activities? But I think maybe the manager still is working with them on the specific information on how to do a sales call or building your pipeline or things like that. So I was kind of looking at having a bifurcated model. So not fully sure. offloading the manager, but offloading them in a certain area where I really felt that the sales enablement role was actually a new role not for a company because there's lots of sales enablement, but it was more justified by the fact that the tools today require a resource to in- make sure that the tools are working properly and that people are actually properly using the tools. So it was a piece right. of the coaching. But some of that, though, too, is tools notwithstanding. It's just human to human, right? It's just, you know, how can I help you, right? What What are you struggling with now? What can we mm-hmm. help you? What Where might you be deficient? You know, I, I troubled by this idea and yeah, after <laughs> decades in sales, is is uh, that we imbue management with these sort of heroic qualities mm-hmm. that they're all knowing, all seeing, all capable, which is just unrealistic, right? Because mm-hmm. we don't we don't train them, we don't support them. You know, the the at a guest on the show a couple months ago that read a book about first time managers that you know the average age at which a manager gets their first management training is forty two. Oh, really? After they've wow. been in sales, after they've been in management for 10 years. And this is management in general, not just sales, but mm-hmm. take that as a, as a starting point. It's like, yeah, it's like, how can we expect to improve sellers to improve their performance if you know, managers are also not being enabled to improve their performance? Well, that is a crazy statistic, and I completely agree. And I would think, you know, that kind of goes more back to the company. The company needs to have different kinds of training, leadership training, management training, and then you get into specific sales management training. So there's the role-based training, but there's also general like leadership companies put together leadership programs and they teach you just basic management. And then sales management, I think, is an offshoot from that. Yeah. Well, I think that that one of the problems I see is is that given the the advent of so much technology into sales, which yeah, most of us would have killed for back in the early days. You, yeah. you and I started our careers well before this this got started. Um, but we we sort of maybe over-rely on them or we don't use them in the appropriate way. And you know, there's a tendency in some organizations to uh, be sort of compliance-oriented, right? Got to use the process, got to use the tools in a certain way. And as a result, People aren't encouraged, being encouraged or coached to become the best version of themselves, mm-hmm. which is really ultimately what we want. We want the best version of that person out representing the company and talking to the customers. And to me, this is like a roadblock. And it's, it's 
I think part of it is, as I talked before, I think it's, you know, we're not doing a good enough job of enabling managers. So they, they are fearful to work outside the process because, hey, this is the sanctioned process and it doesn't work. We can say the problem was the process, not me as an individual. Yes, I, that is another interesting point. And sometimes you have to think about how, how can you work outside the process? There's definitely, you can be very creative on sales calls and come up with creative deal strategy if you know how to do that. But wouldn't it be great if you could just say, you know, I'm not going to send you the materials for that QBR because I'm going to go sell something instead. <laughs> wouldn't yeah. it be great? But that's kind of where you get into, well, I'm going to get fired for doing that. Or, uh, you know, how's that going to fl- flow? Because as my manager going to go tell the CEO, hey, we're not going to have the slides for this review. Well, I, I can tell you how it goes. I can tell you how it goes. Cause, so I worked for a company in, in Mountain View that got mm-hmm. acquired. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Big company acquired, but the division of the big company that acquired us was based back on the East Coast. And the CEO was just this horrible individual. Mm. And so, yeah, I was running international sales. And I just, after going to like one of the quarterly meetings, is like every quarter when we had them, huh, I was either in Asia or Europe. It was just funny how it worked out. <laughs> and finally, after about a year, they came back and said, yeah, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I see. I see. Yeah. Well, at least you had a year to go do what you needed to do, right? Well, that's, that's yeah, that's when I started listening to recruiters at that point. Again. <laughs> well, there you, that's another, that's definitely one way <laughs> to solve that situation. Yeah. So uh, a question for you is, and so we meant to talk about your book, mm-hmm. 42 Rules for Building a High Velocity Inside Sales Team. But we've, we've had all this great conversation. So we have. We'll have you come back again, and we'll talk about it. But there was there was one topic that this is a sort of aligned to what we've been talking about. Is is I feel like we don't measure the right things when it comes to performance and productivity. Mm-hmm. And so I'll throw this out to you: is, is so quota? Let's take quotas. Has quota outlived its usefulness? And I, I ask this because, first of all, no one's making it, right? A small percentage of people are making it mm-hmm. comparatively. And, you know, the idea of, of quota as a measure of performance is it's, I mean, from with Goodhart's Law. So Goodhart's Law is he yeah. was an economist, British economist, and he said, you know, when a, when a measure becomes a target, it loses all value as a measure, hmm. which, is, which is what quota is. And the reason being, as he says, is that, what happens is you you optimize your process to achieve the target rather than optimizing performance. Hmm. And so we have all this technology. We can collect all tons of different sorts of data. Is is I advocate saying, well, why don't we instead of doing that, maybe a, a better way to look at things? And this comes from my own experience having managed organizations doing this. Is is what if we look at what real productivity is in sales? And for me, it's not activities. It's how many dollars of revenue per hour of selling time mm-hmm. is a seller generating? Because you know, time is time is the basic inventory, right? That we have as a seller. And so, isn't it time to really look at that differently? Hmm. And so, for me, is is if I know how productive in a revenue generating sense in a in a unit of time a seller is, it gives me a lot more information to say what levers can I pull to really move the needle with this individual as opposed to sort of this mass quota? That's true. I guess, but you can, I mean, you could technically, technically calculate that, right? You could look at 
what they produce, but then you have to divide it by number of hours. But do you really know what number of hours is? Because how many hours is that seller really working? They're probably not just working 40 hours a week, right? And if they're doing- Well, but I'm saying per sales hour though, because we know, we can sort of okay. know from our tools, right? Are mm-hmm. they on the phone? Are they uh, sending yeah. an email? Are they, we, we have enough, we don't capture all the activity for sure. But I'll give you an example. So again, back, couple decades ago managing two different companies actually managed this way is is they had their their basis in the defense world and as a result we had to capture everybody's hours everybody in the company filled out a uh-huh. time card yep and so what i did when i came in i said oh well, that's interesting so instead of having salespeople charged to an overhead number which they were doing he said well we get a qualified opportunity in the pipeline we put a job number to it Mm-hmm. And then you have to charge your time, and the sales engineers charge their time, and you know everybody who would follow charge their time to that that job number. So I knew when I was getting reports monthly how much revenue people are generating per hour of sales time, and suddenly you start seeing the real differences between people because you can have you know three people all meeting quota mm-hmm. and have the vastly different productivity rates. Um, and I just felt like. Okay, well, this gave me a lot more information to use on individual level to drive better performance with individuals to help them get better, rather than just sort of that sort of blanket statement of quota. Yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. I guess what my question would be, and this is not so that we can answer here, is how many companies have that level of insight to be able to make that shift? I think obviously some companies have very sophisticated tools and they really are able to look at activities and how much sales time knowing that you're not making like the activity is not the most important thing but ultimately certain types of activities do lead to outcomes and results and so how many companies are able to really measure their sellers time and and kind of what they're doing during that time you know because is 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 sales time just the time you're spending with the customer because there's still going to be okay i have to prepare a quote or i have to do this internal thing right Right. that'd be that would be that would be Sales time, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it'd be interesting to know how many companies can really measure down to that level because then you could have that kind of measurement in terms of what they're producing during their sales time. Or if we were back to the older day, the pre-pandemic days, how much time are they spending traveling? Do we need to cut that out so that they could be more productive or whatever the, the thing is that needs to be cut out to make those people more productive, which sounds like you had tremendous insights in that one role where they're yeah. tracking everything hourly. But here's the interesting thing. It wasn't about giving them more hours. The core was, what are they doing with the hour they have? Yes. And that's, only that's so really... Sales days in a year. That's right. So that's really becomes... Because you know, if you ask most sales leaders, well, what's your sales capacity? Mm-hmm. Well, we've got you know 10 sellers. They all got you know $10 million quotas. So yep. you know, our capacity is $100 million. So I was like, no. <laughs> I said, you know, if you have somebody that's... They can, is, their productivity rate is you know X number of dollars per hour of selling time and you know roughly how many hours is on general hours of sales time they have per year then you got a real number that tells you what your capacity is your baseline is and how you can improve it Mm -hmm. and i've seen people trying to make those hypothetical like assuming okay we have this much sales time and we can do this but what they really don't know is what people are doing during those sales hours well that's the key right there because you have to have that before you can make that shift Right, because I hear and talk to people and read things all the time. People say, oh, you know, the way we're going to fix our quote-unquote productivity is 
we're going to free up time for our reps, more time for our reps to sell. And yeah, I was having those conversations 40 years ago with people and it hasn't changed. You know, the same fraction, it's roughly the same fraction of time people actually spend actively engaged in sales, roughly a third of their time. Yep. And even with all this technology and tools we have and enablement, I, I think you could spend a lot of time trying to push that noodle up a hill uh, and it's not going to change. So if we think that's not really going to change rather than sort of tilting at that windmill is, all right, let's fix what happens inside that hour. Mm-hmm. And this is what I think yeah. more focus needs to be put on. Yeah, I think first you have to be able to track it, in it and, and easily, right? You can't, like, they were logging time cards back 20 years ago in your job. How could you easily automatically, and there are tools to do that, sure. essentially track their time so you can see where, you know, where where are they doing busy work and why is it? Why are they doing busy work? Can I help you offload this busy work? Is there some other thing at the company that needs to be automated so you don't have this busy work to give you truly more selling time? And then you got to make sure if you've done that, that they're actually spending that time in sales activities. Well, spending it effectively in activities well, they do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah the effectiveness, because then you got to go down to the level of, okay, they had a sales call, but how do you know what was said? The interaction on that sales call was effective. And, and that's just probably another tool to solve that problem. And, and meaning that you can get conversational analytics to figure out if that particular time was productive. But I love the concept. Okay. Well, good. I feel better. All right. Um, <laughs> Lori, we're going to have to cut off here, but we're definitely going to have you back. We're going to talk about your book because I really enjoyed your book. Well, thank and, you. Um, yeah, one of the topics I want to talk about is, is yeah, what's changed since you wrote it? That was mm-hmm. like five, six years ago. Because yep. um, I think some things have, but I think that we'll definitely have you back and we'll talk about that so if people want to connect with you how can they find you well they can find me on linkedin that's probably the best way to find me great Lori Harmon on linkedin it's so funny over the course of five years of doing this podcast and 800 plus episodes is uh, just watching people when i first started asking that question it's always they're giving their email and their phone Mm -hmm. numbers and now it's only linkedin so uh things have changed they have changed i look forward to our conversation about other changes too all right Thanks, Lori. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I am ever so grateful for your support of the show. I also want to thank my guest, Lori Harmon, for sharing her wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review, let us know how we're doing, but we'd certainly appreciate that. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.